This is the Outstanding Advisor Podcast, the show that features outstanding financial advisors, advisors with an interesting story to tell. Here's the host of the Outstanding Advisors Podcast, David Macchio. Hi, it's David Mackey, and welcome to the Outstanding Financial Advisor Podcast. This is the podcast that features outstanding advisors with an interesting story to tell. And today we have Jason Lena, and I think he's going to certainly fit the bill as being an outstanding financial advisor that you're going to want to know about. Jason, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. David, it is my pleasure to be here. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation with you today. And, um, you know, it's it's really an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, yeah, the honor is mine, sir. And uh, you are a principal uh, of a firm in Omaha called Enlightened Financial Planning. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But I'd like to take you back to the beginning. You know, it's very important for me to have our audience understand the person. So let's go to the very beginning. Where were you born? So um, one thing I'll make sure to, to clarify, um, I am a the founder of Enlightened Financial Planning, and I don't have my principal designation. I can just hear compliance uh, in the background when I take on a designation of a Series 24 principal and not we, have it. We, we don't let compliance officers listen to this podcast. <laughs> Didn't you know that? I'm only kidding. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, I started, I am an Omaha, Nebraska native. I was born and raised here and uh, actually South Omaha. I don't know, you know, anybody who's familiar with Omaha, Nebraska, South Omaha is almost like its own little culture. And uh, so I'm a South O boy. They call us SOBs. <laughs> how, how is it different than other parts of Omaha? You know, it's it's an interesting thing because especially being in the financial world, I and coming from South Omaha, you know, there's not a, a lot of, you know, big houses and fancy cars in South Omaha. I think originally, you know, back in the day, there were a lot of Polish uh, um, immigrants that came over there, which my grandma is 100 percent Polish. And there's also a large Hispanic community down there as well. So we just, um, you know, meshed with, and my wife is also a South Omaha girl and she's Hispanic and I'm a Polish boy. So, you know, there's just a, 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 a hardworking family oriented ethic based background when it comes to South Omaha. When you hear someone's from South Omaha, you're like, Oh, I, I know some people from South Omaha. They're, Good people. They like to enjoy family and friends and, and work hard. And, um, you know, a lot of things are built on trust and love. So that's what I like to tell that story because I, I really like to live by those values. So a traditional American noble background. That's fair. <laughs> Amen. Um, so born in Omaha, working in Omaha today, what was your childhood like, your, your early years? Yeah, so... You know, I I grew up and I my biological mother, you know, she had me at a very young age. She was 17, 18 years old. My dad was a football player, 20, 22, somewhere around there. And my mom had, uh, you know, ended up leaving at a very young age. And she went to California 
And it was just me and my dad for a, a period of time. And, you know, I think back and reflect on this, you know, knowing what I know now about being a parent and seeing, you know, a lot of different scenarios with families. And, you know, that really helps me put some important things into perspective for the sacrifices he made, you know, being a single dad, but it also, um, you know, he did get remarried and we have, um, you know, a big family now, and I'll, I'll tell a little bit more about that, but, you know, it, I saw a man who, you know, worked multiple jobs to take care of me. And most of the jobs were jobs that people didn't, you know, they don't want to do. Right. I mean, he was, cleaning office buildings, cleaning up after people making more money than him. He was a custodian for public schools for the majority of his life and cleaned apartment complexes and things like that. So, you know, it showed me what hard work was and, you know, also, um, you know, it just really kind of defined who I was. But my dad ended up getting remarried and my stepmom, who I consider my mom as well, I have a relationship with both moms, so I'm fortunate to have two mothers. But this was a, an interesting part of defining who I was as well, because, you know, they had a difficult time having children for a very long time. And then all of a sudden, I was age 10. My mom had twin boys. So I'm 10 years older than my two youngest brothers. And then my parents had two more children after that. So, you know, we had five boys and I'm about six foot one and I am the shortest one in the family. So I'm the runt. <laughs> I get made fun of. I'm the runt of the family at six one. You know, my dad was a football player. My tallest brother is about six eight. And, you know, it's just an, an adventure, um, you know, which instilled those values. It, it showed what hard work and family was really the true wealth in our lives. You know, you're the runt, but you're the big brother and always will be. So I wanna go back to what you said because I thought it was a very difficult thing for me to hear. Your mom essentially abandoned you, it sounds like, and you've reconciled with your mom since then, but how difficult was that for you as a kid? You know, I, I asked this question to myself and I think about this often because I know that if there's ever relationships in our lives and especially ones where we may have conflict or difficulty, whether it's, you know, people at jobs, but especially family members, when there's strong conflicts between family members, I believe wholeheartedly that God puts us together for a reason. And those conflicts are things that need to be addressed. You know, I, I forgiveness and love are two of the most important lessons that everybody in life needs to learn. Knowing that I think about that and I try to think of my mom and my dad, because we all have difficulties with our parents, um, you know, by wholeheartedly forgiving them and loving them with all my heart. I don't know. I don't know what impact it really made on me, you know, from a young age. I'm sure there were times where subconsciously there's things that have happened, but I definitely don't hold any grudges. Um, you know, we've got our, our relationship issues, but I know that we all just need to grow together and 
and forgive and love. And those are the, the main values that we need to figure out. I appreciate your attitude. And from her perspective, as a 17 year old, that's a child having a child that had to be very, very, very difficult for all parties. So you, let's, let's say we get, take you through elementary school and junior high school, and you're ready for your first job. What was <laughs> your first job? Well, this was interesting. So, you know, one thing that my dad always said, he said, you're either going to get a job or you're going to go to school. And either one of those, if not, you're out of here, right? That was, that was the options. And my mom, my other mom, um, was a student services uh, counter member at a community college. So she was all about college. And I actually got to go to a local community college at no cost. So that's another point of how ignorant younger kids are because I didn't even take full advantage of that. So it was free sure. college and I didn't even finish it. But I ended up, you know, getting a job at a grocery store when I was 16. But from the the moment of, all right, get a job, let's get a paycheck, I'm going to work. Uh, I was also testing out the waters with school. Um, I was going to school for graphic design once I graduated. And I realized that, you know, if I didn't have to go to school, I wasn't going to go to school. It was just kind of one of those things. And my, my scope of jobs that I had from 18 to 19, well, let's say 16 to 19, I did everything from bricklayer to sprinkler installer to roofer to garbage man in the middle of winter in Nebraska. Uh, so I've, I've definitely tried to find my path on what I did not want to do. And then in the weirdest way, I found a home in the collection industry of all places. And collection, I got to tell like you, bill collection. That's right. That's right. So the collection industry gets a bad rap. I'll, I'll just put that out there. I, I did it for 12 years. And wow. if you, you want to think about uh, testing your metal and doing a job that would really show you different things and has just had a lot of not fun conversations, try calling people every day for 12 years that owe money. But the other thing is it was eye opening. I saw a side of the world, and it kind of makes sense looking back now from how I grew up and where I was from, of people that didn't have, but people that are still good people at heart and need help getting somewhere in life, getting out of situations. So when you're truly just trying to help somebody, trying to hear their story, trying to understand and know at their heart that they're good people, most people who owe money are not malicious people. There's just things that happened, you know? So... It, it opened my eyes up. It really grew me as a communicator, as a listener. And, uh, you know, I did that for 12 years, not to mention there were some really interesting times. So we were doing second mortgages and home equity lines in 08, 09, mm. and we were doing it nationwide. So imagine calling people in California where they've got a $900,000 second line of credit on their house, and now their value just went down to 200000 it was just unbelievable, but we would be advocates and go to the bank and help them with short sales and settle out their debts for 10, 20 cents on the dollar. There's some really interesting things that I learned 
you know, from that and, and through deficiency balances and all these other financial vehicles. So it was helpful for me, for sure. Yeah, I think a job like that would give you empathy. And uh, I appreciated, you know, what you're telling us about the, you know, the variety of jobs you had as a young kid. It reminded me of me. <laughs> you know, I started working in a drugstore as a cleaner at 14. And when I was 16, I worked in a shoe factory for the grand sum of $1.60 an hour running a, an injection molding machine. Holy and along holy. the way, the time I was 18 or 19, I was a printer, a shipper. A, I was on a framing crew building houses. I did a whole bunch of things like that. And I, I think all that stuff adds character to people. Right. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong. Any, any job worth doing is a job to be proud of. That's how I think about it. Amen. So, like, what age were you when you decided to leave the collection business after 12 years? Well, I was, let's see. So, I think it's been 11 years now, and I'm 41. Let's just call it 30. So, I was okay. around 30 years old. And I, f I strongly believe this, and this is kind of at the heart of who I am and who I try to help people understand these values and these lessons, that there comes points in people's lives where wherever you're at has suited you to the point that it's going to suit you. And there's signs that you start seeing that if you're not listening, it's going to start hurting even more because the signs are going to hit you over the head because you didn't hear the whisper. But I knew, you know, I was motivated. I was going to try to be successful in every facet I could. And I was coming in and I'm like, I'm going to force myself to stay here and do this job. But I just couldn't take it. I didn't love it anymore. And that was the moment looking back where it's like, okay, that was, that was God. That was the Holy Spirit. That was, you know, I don't, and I'm not preaching to anybody on a, a on a spiritual religious, but, but. God is the most important thing out there, but I'll leave that. But my point is, is the forces will push you in the direction that you really need to go if you stop trying to stay and swim, you know, the opposite way. And that's how I felt at that job. Um, multiple signs had happened, which was kind of fun. My wife was getting a job to take her Series 7, Series 24, all her securities licenses. And she's like, this is all terrible but you would love this. And that was when I was still at collections. So that was the first little seed that got planted. And I remember reading a little bit and I saw calls and puts and options. And I'm just like, this all looks terrible. I would not love this. Was she, was she at a broker dealer? So she was going to a firm to be their principal. Yeah. And she was coming from collections. We met at collections. So we actually worked at the same firm for a very long time. And she ended up taking that job. Hindsight, it was a blessing because she got a study for her master's in teaching while doing the job. And, and it was kind of dual purpose for her as well. So there's a lot of flexibility. It was a great job. Um, cool. But it was interesting how she had exposure to a world that I was supposed to go in or going to be going into as well. And then another thing that I was at my old job and I was a supervisor and I was kind of as high that you could go. We were a pretty small company and there wasn't much room for growth um, at that point. And I just didn't really love what I did. I just knew it. it. Every day you're trying to force it. It's just so difficult. So a gal who I was a supervisor of got a job at TD Ameritrade. And she told me you know, what she was starting out at. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I've been here for 12 years and I'm not, I'm not making that. 
And I had a friend that worked there and I said, I need to reach out to him. So, you know, it's not all about money, but money's a, a fine tool and a driver in our lives. So I reached out to him and I haven't, I didn't have a degree at this point. So for a guy like myself, if I was going to try to get into the securities industry for at a big firm, my application's probably getting looked over yep. because I don't have any anything other than I worked for a collection industry for 12 years and was a garbage man a long time. But anyways, I ended up reaching out to him and he got my foot in the door. I got an interview and it went really well. They gave me an opportunity, not even at the lowest level, not even working the 10 hour days on the weekends. It was, you get to talk to our you know new clients and all this. And I was really good at it. You know, I, I worked hard. I knew how to talk to people. I had a lot of experience doing this, talking to people that had no money and didn't want to talk to me to now people that have money and they're interested in hearing, you know, solutions and what I have to say. So it was a really interesting transition, how collections and, and the securities uh, industry meshed well together. Mm-hmm. But uh, I moved up pretty quick. I ended up starting there. I had great success. I was, you know, on the top one or two usually with, with whatever those metrics were. And then all of a sudden I kept progressing into the financial advisor, uh, you know, professional planning uh, role. And I was a pretty hard worker. And, and one of those people that was motivated, I'd listened to Tony Robbins and a lot of these people that inspired me. And I remember asking my my supervisor to load calls of other professionals that were doing really well and thinking, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. I want to hear how they communicate with people, what they can do. I'd go in on Saturdays and Sundays at like 4.30 in the morning and just listen to phone calls of these guys that are doing amazing jobs. So, you know, that was sort of just, we're only as good as the other people we learn from, sort of, you know, example in my life. So that really helped me. And then I ended up, one of the people that I listened to a lot, as weird as it works out this way, I ended up getting a job sitting across the hallway from him in the number one branch in the nation for the company we worked for. So a guy that I sort of, I don't want to say idolized, but really looked up to and learned a lot from, I ended up across the hall from him and able to learn with him, you know, make a good relationship and, and he's a good friend. So it's just interesting how, you know, the people that you are drawn to and learn from, you, sure. you really connect with. So. Yeah, most interesting. So how long at TD Ameritrade? I was there for eight years, give or take. And Okay. And then when you came, uh, well, take me through your progression at TD. You know, mm-hmm. uh, where were you? Was it strictly with the financial advisory part of the business at the end? That, that was the exactly where it was, right? So I was one of, you know, maybe five or six financial planners, professionals, advisors here in the local uh, branch in Omaha. And this was the branch to be in. It was the number one branch across the nation every, almost every time. So the, we were kind of the home team because TD Ameritrade was, you know, a Nebraska-based business. Sure. But there was still a you know, a quality of service and, and education and, and what they provided. So I learned a lot there, was surrounded by really good people. Um, but the interesting thing, kind of back to that point at collections, when I had reached that point where 
you just knew like you had reached the point where you were you were kind of at that top mm-hmm. and this was crazy so i'm now at the top branch in the nation for a very large firm and there was things that happened in my life at that point that made me realize that i was going to go independent i just knew it i knew wholeheartedly i was going to do it but i was leaving a job that was paying me a very good salary that I had a lot of stock options left on the table there. And I'll tell you what, I don't look back. I don't regret one bit of it. I remember a friend of mine had reached out and he had left, you know, he was part of some of the layoffs that had happened because of the transition. And he was referring some people over to me and I called him and I was like, hey, why, why are you sending me business? What are you doing? And, and really at the heart of me wanting to connect with them is what can I do for you? How can I help you in what you're doing? I don't want to just be re- receiving everything and not trying to give back or help you in some way. Sure. And he told me about a way that he has helped people pay debt a lot quicker. And you'll probably, I don't know if you've heard about this, but if you have a revolving line of credit versus a close-ended mortgage, you can park your paycheck and chunk down your debt yep. and it'll pay it off in a fraction of the time. Right. And coming from where I came from, I'm like, wait a minute, I can help people get out of debt quicker that don't have money. And I can now also help them get into wealth because I knew that side of it too. So this was a calling. I mean, this was, I mean, this was kind of my dad, my upbringing. This is what I, I so I- well, you, you were built for this. Right. As crazy as it is. And I, I left a lot on the table and I jumped off that cliff without a parachute. I, I just did it. I wholeheartedly. And now a lot has transpired from that moment until now. And, um, I'll tell a little bit about it. Oh, you fill in the gaps for sure. Yeah. So we ended up going into business with about three other individuals um, you know, an attorney, uh, individual who, um, you know, specialized in property and casualty. We had a good group, another advisor, we had a good group, a good group of guys. Well, uh, it just didn't work out like we had hoped. And I just, I knew in my heart that that wasn't the right fit Mm -hmm. and made that decision to tell them, look, we've just got to separate. We've got to, we've got to, this is not what I, I didn't want to be some big RIA that, you know, I don't know. I just, their, their vision and what my vision was were very different. And I knew that. And I had signs and just for respect to anybody ever listens to this on, you know, that side, I don't want to say anything badly. There's a lot of things that transpired that kind of tugged at my heart the wrong way that I just, I, it, it wasn't right for me. And as crazy as it was, I had just left my, my very reliable job. I've got a wife and two kids and my wife substitutes. And so she doesn't work all the time. I have a full-time job. I've taken this leap and I've got no idea how we're going to fix this or make it work. Right. I've got some retirement savings and some money saved up. That'll maybe bridge the gap. But, but ultimately I took the leap and I, and I didn't go down with the business or didn't go with the business that we had initially planned on. So now I'm like, okay, now what do I do? So I've got another dear friend that is with my same broker dealer. And he said, well, Hey, I was never going to tell you, you know, to go talk to this guy because I didn't want to, you know, break a relationship they already had. 
but there's another guy with our broker dealer that is really close to you. And, you know, he's 65, may leave the industry at some point and just go talk to him, see if it, it works out. Well, I come in and we just hit it off. Great relationship. And he goes, well, I've got an open office over there. I've got an assistant here at the front desk and it's just me. And you can sit in the, you know, have the open office and we'll just work out a deal where maybe I have an override on some of your business, blah, blah, blah. And the funniest thing about it, it's like, okay, well, I didn't have a home. Now I've got an amazing office help and a, a guy who will help me in any way possible too, that we can work together on. And I'm looking out the window and I see the, the, the golf range that I spent a bunch of time on. That's like next to my house. And it's just like, it's so funny how God works and we always get into the right place at the right time. You just got to have faith. It just, it's, I can't stress it enough. It blows my mind looking at all these things that have transpired in my life. So. And that gentleman uh, that you hit it off with, is he your current partner? So we're not part, we just, I still am in the office with him. Yeah, we haven't got really it. Really you have an association. Yeah. Worse, but the nice thing is we, we, um, are registered through the same broker dealer. So if there's any, it makes it pretty easy on that side of business. Side sure. of things. Yeah. So let me ask you about your business. You know, everybody has sort of a practice model and a philosophy. And I think where the greatest distinctions are drawn about this is not when people are 35 and growing their money. It's when they're 65 and they're spending their money. That's where you see all of these, you know, different concepts come to the fore and, you have these big philosophical disagreements about how that should be done. You know, when you meet retirees or about to be retirees and you're charged with the responsibility of turning their accumulated savings into durable income, how do you think about that challenge? Oh, David, I, I was so excited to talk to you about this because <laughs> I've seen just you even a, it's a favorite subject of mine. And it is a, a, a fundamentally broken industry. This was also part of the reason where I was working with a firm that specialized in one thing, and that is investments. And the investments are essentially a portfolio of funds that have certain target allocation percentages. If you need a paycheck, they sell each pro rata and cut you your paycheck. And, it, and it's really a it's that is a wonderful tool, wonderful product, and people benefit from it. But that's designed for accumulation. That's designed for a 35 year old that doesn't want to invest on their own, doesn't know how to do it. And they can put money in there and it'll buy incremental amounts at different prices, knowing that at some point in the future, it should be worth more. Right. Right. When this question, though, the 65 year old. The risks that they're taking on, if they continue just using that portfolio to pay for the rest of their life, let me use this analogy because I, I really like this analogy. It's as though you have a person who is a portfolio manager or a real estate manager, and you tell them, hey, property manager, I want to give you my money. And I want you to buy as many quality properties as you can with this money every time I get it. When you're younger, they keep on doing that. And then the income that comes from the properties, they're just taking that income and they're buying more quality properties. So instead of 
turning the income off at some point in the future. And that person should be telling that property manager, hey, at some point in the future, I'm going to need you to pay me income. I'm going to need to stop giving you money to buy properties and I'm going to need income from that. They, they instead of at that point when they need that income turned on, they keep taking the income from the properties and reinvesting and buying more properties. And then the only way that they get a paycheck is to set that whole portfolio up for auctions every month at a random auction price that they have no idea what the auction price is going to be, but they'll just sell a property of it, right? That's ludicrous. There is no property manager that would do that. Sell If you need a money, I'm going to set your properties up for auction and we'll just give you a paycheck when you need it. There's a better way to do it. And the second aspect of that is, is when you're 65, why in the world would I still be, why would I sell my, my reliable apartment complex in Omaha, Nebraska to go buy a fixer upper that could take 10, 15 years in a different country? Why should that be a part of my income producing strategy? It's just, it's a, it's, it's a way that's always worked to grow money for, for portfolios. It's not the way that it should be done to spend money. So now well, it's, it's, it's the notion of dollar cost averaging into the market is good, but dollar cost averaging out of the market is deadly. Mm -hmm. Sequence of returns is the scariest thing that people really can't quantify and they're not factoring in. And to your point, I, on, on annuities, annuities are, they have a place. There is no way. So life insurance has a bad misnomer. We'll go back to where I think there's kind of a, a breakdown in the financial industry and it's almost like religion or politics. You know, it's it's designed to separate. It's designed to talk badly about something else. It's designed to say, no, not them, me, right? And and you can break down the levels of the different religions or the political belief systems. But let's just say, um, you know, you've got the, the career agents that are at a firm that their design is to get the award and, and sell that product and they've drank the Kool-Aid, right? Um, all the way down to the RIA, which is the holiest of holy, and I'm a fiduciary, but they're actually a big part of the problem, right? With that rebalancing portfolio that's causing these sequence of returns. But, but I think just like religion and politics, if we would just listen to the other people and learn from them and see what they're doing as positive and understand that the tools that everybody uses are good tools, just figuring out how to use them in the most efficient way, we'd be way better yeah. off. It's hard, and I've been I've been working on this since 2005. You know, the uh, nonprofit retirement income industry association was you know formalized in 2005, and I was a founding member. And it was all about bringing companies together, mostly big companies, mostly the big household names together, mm -hmm. to develop the next generation of retirement income products because the baby boomers were heading toward retirement starting mm -hmm. in 2011. Right. And um, everybody sort of recognized back then that these disparate silos had to unite because the solution for the baby boomers was going to be not just one silo, it was going to be a combination of silos. Right. But I'm going to tell you, I, I looked at this closely and I've, I've written about it. And, you know, there was a, a big initiative at Mass Mutual, actually two of them. There was a big initiative at MetLife. There was a big initiative at Lincoln Financial and other companies, mm -hmm. Allianz. Mm -hmm. And these, comp these silos would not come together. They'd not work together jointly. 
And so when I came up with the income for life model solution, it was to say, I'm telling you this, I wouldn't tell this to consumers, but basically it was like, okay, Mr. Silo, do what you do. You know, be right. a great asset manager. You over here, be great at annuities, be great at right. insurance. Right. I'll provide the framework that it unites you. And right. The client. Right. Uh, because it's hard for these companies to, to do it. it. It's virtually impossible. But you make up a great point, which is the politics. It's another subject I've written about. It, it really, really irritates me. And I'll give you one example of irritation. You have, nobody's holy in this political right. conflict, right. okay? Right. Nobody's sacred. But, for example, the RIAs demean and insult the insurance people when they right. say, oh, I don't sell, sell annuities. Right. And my response to that is, you sell every day. Right. If a client comes in your office, you sell your competency vis-a-vis -vis another RIA to right. explain why you're better. Right. This entire economy is built on selling. Everybody is selling, and good thing that we are. It propels right. this, our system. There's right. no shame in being a, a salesperson. I right. think it's a noble profession. Agreed. And, you know, the, the way I think about it is, I don't care how you get compensated. I think everyone needs to be compensated for what they do. Right. They deserve to be compensated. My concern is, Let's not let the patient die on the table when he or she needs surgery because we're arguing about these inside baseball issues. Exactly. If you want to get compensated on AUM, you want to get compensated on commission, okay, fix the patient's problem. Right. That's what I say. And, and, and I wish we could move it, past it. What Go is ahead. the job of a financial professional? It's to make sure that the people that they help don't run out of money. And if there's a better way to do that, I don't care what Kool-Aid you drink or what licenses you have, be open-minded to learn about the ways that can help you do that job because that's all people really want. And if you can't solve, the major question is, is time, right? We don't know how long somebody's gonna live. You can't solve time. You need to figure out how to best do that. And the only way to solve time is annuities. Insurance companies have a longer timeline and they'll pay somebody forever. And the only way to solve somebody from not running out of money before they are self-sustainable is life insurance. That's why everybody has the right amount of term insurance or whatever it is. Insurance companies are not the enemy. It's the separation and that belief that you think that you have whatever product it is, it's like, if a, if a mechanic only used a hammer to fix an engine, you just can't, it's not going right. to work. You have to be open-minded and, and learn and help other people. You know, there's a lot of good ways to do it, but you can't just be biased towards any product. You got to learn about it. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you. We have to take the hypocrisy out of the, the, the conversation. The yeah. Hypocrisy and in, is, is everywhere. Yeah, I think that's so philosophically... I believe that we're here to grow back towards each other, grow back to God, and we're all from the same place. We're all built on love, right? So there's two real forces that that generate everything. One is bringing us together, a force of love, that's God. 
The other one is separating us and causing self, me, me, I know, that person doesn't know. If you break those two things simplistically down in any thought you ever have, you follow one, you're going to get one experience. You follow the other, it's going to cause another experience. And I think that's what's happened. And you can see it in politics. You can see it in religion. You can see it in so many things. How many times did we burnt bridges in relationships because it was about us, because something we want and something they did wrong versus us thinking, what could, you know, how can I help them? You know, I don't know. We just need to see stuff from other people's perspectives. Yeah. And I tell you this, all of this politics and factionalism, and I call it the balkanization of financial services. It's a big problem for another reason. I've been writing about this, especially the last couple, last six or seven days, because it's Women's Month, obviously. Mm -hmm. I put a, an article up today about this. You know, there's a mismatch that's going to be fatal to many advisors' careers if it's not fixed and fixed quickly. And it is that there is a serving up of a solution to a boomer age woman, woman that she doesn't really want. It's a male dominated business and male dominated companies that are serving up too much risk, not listening and not regarding the woman's preferences. And this is quantified in research. No one can tell me that this isn't true. And the women that I speak with who interact with male financial advisors, in many cases, verified that it's true. And it's verifiable, you know, by the startling fact that seven out of 10 men are fired when the husband dies. It's a shameful reality. Now, this political reality that we're facing, these warring factions in our industry, um, are going to cause women to not be served well if it's not fixed. And it, the problem is, Within the next five to six years, women are going to control as much as $30 trillion of wealth, almost all the wealth. Wow. And so if you're a male advisor and you are incapable of developing, of fomenting an authentic relationship with a boomer age woman, right. if you're not capable of truly listening to her and implementing her values and her needs, if you're taking the position that you know better as an investment professional what she needs than what and she thinks what she needs. You might as well leave the business today. Right. Because you won't have a future. So I think this is something that we need to focus on. I think we really can't solve the problem. The magnitude of the problem for retirement income for women is so severe and so widespread. It can't be done without the participation of male advisors because they represent 85% of the population of advisors. Right. Right. But they have to change. They have to be coached and they have to learn new insights and skills. And then I think things will work out. If it's not that. I expect uh, artificial intelligence to come up with applications that take the human being out of it. I think it's going to have to be something like that that, that, that is created and hopefully that doesn't happen. Hmm. But, you know, men, men should be very motivated right now to be inward looking, uh, self-reflective in making changes that um, they need to make in order to ensure that they're going to, you know, have careers. And I'll just make one more thing about insurance, because I said the word insure. This really irritates me. Financial advisor who doesn't like annuities. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's illogical. 
because all of the traditional objections to annuities don't exist anymore, right? All of the, the bad stuff has been factored out of them. But that advisor who owns a home wouldn't think for a moment of leaving his home uninsured against fire, wouldn't get in his car without having auto insurance, insures his his wife's valuable engagement ring, Mm -hmm. his art collection, whatever he may have that's valuable, yet routinely will not insure someone's income, which is the single most important financial asset any retiree has. I'm calling BS on the whole thing. Let's let's get off it. Let's get over it. Grab yourself a big armful of no load, no commission, no surrender charge annuities, and start helping women. Yeah, absolutely. And anyway, I'll, I'll step off my soapbox. Well, I, I I love it. I really do because it's it's a an education, a training issue that the industry has, both from an empathetic level with women but also on a, what the tools are and how to use them in an efficient manner, because most people just sell something that they're good at, like an investment portfolio. Why learn something else, you know, and as a a firm that's making hand over fist profit from this, why reduce the AUM by tax, you know, Roth converting, why take the risk of, you know, all those liabilities that are taken on, you know, when you just provide this portfolio and make a boatload of money on it, it's 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 really an understanding of the tools. But why learn more about the tools if you don't have to because you're doing so well? It's just this crazy, um, you know, separation and the bias that you've got just because somebody said it and you didn't actually look into it and learn how it worked. So this was, I think, I. I, I'll give myself credit that I'm never complacent with what I know and what I, you know, what I sell that I always want to learn. And I think there's different tools and better things out there. It's allowed me to open my mind to annuities and shift from that, that transition. And it is like starting school all over again, how annuities work and how life insurance works and IULs and all of those things. My mind was just blown. I'm, I'm an over analytical guy, you know, sometimes to a fault. And I got to know why this learn, you know, goes this way and how, how these things work. And if you open up a whole new world of annuities and, and insurance, um, you know, it's not easy if you've established yourself already. So it's, it's a fundamental problem that, you know, I hope that we keep working towards solving in the industry. And if not, just be open-minded to other people that have experience in that realm, because it'll help the people you help in a much better way. Let's, let's, this is why you know, I came up with the, and I've worked very hard for the constrained investor notion, because I think I want to help the, the advisors of the United States who don't work with annuities and don't really execute retirement income planning properly, and that's most of them, unfortunately. Right. They need a new framework. They need a new way to think about the client and the client's needs. And if we can make them understand that there's a category of clients and it's a large category of clients that are constrained investors and they must have longevity, longevity protection minimally, then we can sort of back them into doing the right thing in terms of embracing annuities. And, and David, I'll, you know, this is also 
an interesting combination that happens when you work to do the right thing to help people out with these different resources, because it's not just one tool that solves everybody's issues, but when you do it holistically and you make sure to use the right amount of income annuities and, and whatever those needs are, um, profitability as an advisor increases. I believe that wholeheartedly. And it's not at the disposal of that client's assets. It's, be, it's just some efficiency happens when you're using the right tools in the right way holistically that, you know, it seems to be more profitable even for who you are as doing the job that you're doing for the people you're serving. Well, if there was such a way to buy a call option on future career success, mm. it would be calling annuity. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I want to ask you a couple of different kinds of questions now. If I could give you a magic wand, mm -hmm. you could wave that magic wand. And in the waving of that wand, you could make any change that you wanted. Forgive my dog barking. Any change that you wanted in the world of, say, wealth management or insurance or both, what change would you make? that people are going to realize that the abundance that comes into their life doesn't work by pushing other people and their ideas and what they know away. And that the currency is actually listening and caring and helping others first and foremost. And if you look at other people, ever, other advisors, and that financial repercussion, that abundance of, of self-satisfaction of your job, that's all driven by you first and foremost, not thinking you know everything and that you, you know, but by listening and listening to the people we help, listening to the other advisors, thinking that everything that other people are doing is not wrong, but right and things that you could learn from. I would wave my wand to help us realize that it doesn't work. You don't tear, you don't become the tallest building by tearing the other ones down. You do it by building the other ones up. Like that's just, that's, it's, it's a, a law of life. I like that. Sometimes I say no one has the right to tear the fabric of anyone else's dreams. Next question. If you could be, or do anything else, be a, you know, Olympic champion swimmer, a great trumpet player, a, a world-class, uh, you know, biotechnologist, uh, yeah. won a Nobel prize in economics. If you could do anything, what would it be? I think at the heart of what I do, I want to learn and listen to other people and hear their stories and help them feel empowered. And because everybody is put on this earth as special and they all have this little light and gifts inside of them. Um, you know, I just want to, I want to hear that. And I want to, 
figure out how I can connect them with other people and, and help build them up. Right. So it's, I, I feel like it's kind of what I do. I, I really, even just being a, a therapist slash psychiatrist in this job and, and hearing people's concerns and joys. And, and that's, that's what I love. So. Okay. Last question. You're retired. Mm -hmm. And if you were to envision your retirement in the ultimate, most perfect and ideal way, mm -hmm. where are you and what are you doing? I would have one of the coolest RVs that you could ever have. And I don't know if you've heard of earth roamers, but these things are just outrageously expensive and off, you know, off road. But I would take that into places in the mountains with my wife and sit and enjoy coffee and look at the creations that God's made and read books and, you know, connect with what's beautiful in this world. I'd go to Alaska. I'd go to uh, Egypt, I'd take that thing everywhere and just experience different cultures and people and, and the beautiful places in the world. So that's great happening. answer. Yeah, yeah that's great happening. answer. You know, you, I, I wouldn't bet against it. So Jason, I, I want to thank you for, for appearing on the show. You're only our second guest. This is a brand new endeavor. And I very much appreciate your willingness to join me. You are an outstanding advisor and you have a very interesting story to tell. There's no question about it. So thank you. And um, again, it was great to meet you. Yeah. Hope to talk with you again. Thank you, David. And, uh, and best of luck. And everyone, thank you for joining. Thanks for joining the Kapod today. Uh, we'll be seeing you soon next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Outstanding Advisor Podcast. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, tell us why you are an outstanding financial advisor with an interesting story to tell.